you're black and get coronavirus, you're at far greater risk of death than if you're white. It's horrifying, isn't it? But it, it's, it's, for me, this is what structural inequality is. I want to be absolutely clear, this government stands unequivocally against critical race theory. This is the first of a three-part series where I sit with black academics and think out loud on race. And I stitch conversations and voice notes that enrich the discussion. Well, there's no other group where they've been systematically stripped of their humanity throughout history, where, where colonization has meant that they've gone to their country and encaptured them and taken them by force to another country, where they have been raped, where they've been thrown overboard in the sea. There's no other group that that has happened to. There is no other group. Welcome to Race Relations with Natalie. This is the part where I would sing a jingle if I could sing, but I can't. So I'll just give you a race relations. I just didn't want someone asking me, where is your jingle? Well, I'm a postgraduate researcher at the Open University in the UK. And whilst this episode is indeed sponsored by the Open University's grad school, which is a great place to study your PhD, particularly during these pandemic times. The university has been mastering the art of distance learning for over 50 years now, so you would be at an advantage. Now, let's briefly make this about me. The opinions expressed during this podcast, like all opinions, are my own, as in they belong to me, myself and I. Trigger warning though, I will do you a solid and give you a trigger warning. I am a black woman who has experienced racism in this Great Britain. As a result, I do not intend to filter myself on race-related issues. So if you find that you are the kind of person who's highly uncomfortable with the idea of Britain being described as racist, then this isn't the podcast for you. And to you, I say, good day. In this episode, I am joined by two black female academics. You know, they're so far and few in between, I call them unicorns. I'm joined by Violent Zero, who is a now retired lecturer. She also worked within the NHS. We discuss parts of her book, Anti-Oppressive Practice in Health and Social Care. We explore ideas around equality, identity, and decolonization. I'm also joined by Dr. Jenny Douglas. She's a senior lecturer in health promotion at the Open University. Her work has looked at race, gender, and health. She contributed a chapter to a book that I just cannot recommend enough. It's called Inside the Ivory Tower, a narrative of women of color surviving and thriving in British academia. I took advantage of the relaxed lockdown measures, hopped on a train to interview Violenzera, who alongside Paul Williams wrote anti-oppressive practice in health and social care. The book was published in 2009. It is now 2020. And I picked up the book following the Bain report on COVID. It was commissioned by the chief medical officer in England earlier on in the pandemic when it was becoming clear that COVID-19 was not affecting everyone in the same way. The report was upsetting, but it was not surprising. In fact, it was in keeping 
with the historical failures of the NHS, with the stories of discrimination that we've had from the NHS time and again. We know that black women are much more likely to have severe complications than white women. So it's clearly a really important area to, to focus on and work out why. The difficulty is that there's no one easy answer. It's actually a very complex picture. When you start to talk about the way you felt you've been treated, and people say, no, it's not racism, it's not black women, it's all women. This happens to all women. So you're shut down, you're silenced, and so you say nothing. In 1982 to 1984, I worked for a project called Training in Health and Race, and that was to look at racial inequalities and to develop appropriate training for health workers working in a multiracial society. And as you say, we've had lots of reports since then, but really very little has changed. And, you know, so we're talking about a period of 30 to 40 years where things, you know, if they are changing, they're changing very slowly. The report that was written by Joe Larby in, it was published in 1985, but the research was done in 1983 about the black women's experiences and maternity services are exactly the same as black women are experiencing in 2020. The research was in keeping with widely available and well-documented research on the social determinants of health, factors that affect our life chances and quality of life, such as housing, poverty, and air quality. When I sat down with Jenny, she told me the story of Ella Kisidebra, a nine-year-old from Southeast London who died in 2013. She, she was from South London, and she kept having asthma attacks. And um, when she died, um, the, the area of, near to where she lives, when they monitored the pollution levels, the pollution levels were very high. So her mother, um, I think her mother's called Rosamond, has been campaigning. And um, when they had the first inquest, I think in 2014, they said that, you know, she died from um, a fatal asthma attack. And her mother has been campaigning about the pollution. So that, in fact, at the end of November, they are having a new inquest because they've been monitoring the air quality near to where she lives during all this time. And they, they are able to demonstrate that, in fact, the air pollution was much higher than, you know, the kind of nationally recommended standards. So, as I say, we, we, have, we do have to fight on all levels because, you know, we can see that, um, we can see that, that, that health is an important issue and that, you know, people are dying. On to Viola's book. It's a heavy title. Why the book? Why the title? And why personal practice? Why the book is the first part insofar as... In academia, I had identified with a colleague that there were limited materials that really captured what we wanted to do. Mm -hmm. um, like in any situation, if the materials are not available, you create them. So that's why yes. the book. The focus in health and social care uh, is kind of a passion for me and my colleague insofar as Healthcare practitioners, social care practitioners, they claim to care. Therefore, there is no room for oppression. Mm -hmm. It's particularly important that 
they constantly reflect on what they are doing to ensure that there's no less favorable treatment afforded to the people they care for. You start off the book with an excerpt from the encyclopedia in 1908. Mm -hmm. It describes the Negro in a way that reduces black people as human beings, but 1908 was a long time ago, so why start there? 1908 is a long time ago indeed. However, first-hand experience, interacting with students, visiting placements, uh, clearly stimulated us to decide with my colleague how best to capture where we're still at and how much more work still needs to be done. Color-based racism and discrimination was apparent then, still apparent now. So it may seem like a caricature and that people have changed. Black people are no longer seen in those terms. It has just become a hidden, but we still are there. Reading it, um, for me, it was quite striking in the way that it describes black people as entertainers, for example, mm-hmm. um, as people who are jovial, as people who can withstand oppression, as people who can withstand poverty and somehow still rise above it because it's just the nature of, well, in those terms, the Negro. Mm -hmm. How important is identity to the way you relate to each other? Identity, uh, I still think, is important, even at the time of writing and now. Uh, unless people are secure in their own identity, mm-hmm. they will continue not to thrive, not to give of their best. Yes. And race-based identity remains problematic. If you did feel sick at the beginning of COVID-19, you were less likely to say that I don't feel well, or you're more likely to say that it's just a cough. Why? Um, um, I think it's probably just the, the idea that you'd be uh, judged. So if you was the first person to come out with a symptom, you would feel like, oh, they're going to think it's, you know, the black woman that's brought this virus into the hospital. Can you share more on why it's problematic? It's problematic because um, the countries in the West yes. have economic power. And there's a division between developed and less developed countries. So the people with power economically, they identify themselves as the people with everything. When people come from elsewhere, uh, less developed countries, they will be identified as people who are coming to get people who need, but their needs are not viewed in the same way. I came to the UK from Iran uh, when I was 13 years old as an asylum seeker. Uh, Life was very hard at the beginning, uh, but I I settled in. Uh, I went to university and I'm now a pharmacist and I'm working uh, in the NHS in the hospital. People who are coming to get people who need, but their needs are not viewed in the same way. 
I am originally from Zimbabwe. I came to the UK when I was 13 years old as an asylum seeker. I decided to go to university to study nursing. I am now a qualified nurse working in the NHS. People who are coming to get people who need, but their needs are not reviewed in the same way. I came to the UK when I was 14, yeah, 14, just before I turned 15, and we came in as asylum seekers, and then we um, went to University of Lancaster, where I did a biomedical sciences degree, and graduated with a first class honours, and then after that I went to Leicester University to study medicine for a further five years. Following that I qualified as a doctor. And now I am um, a trainee general surgeon who's hoping to specialise in major trauma and emergency general surgery. I was able to see that it didn't matter whether black women worked in the health service or not. They were still having poor experiences. So that kind of... So we can't say it's black women's lack of knowledge of health services that um, points to their poor experiences. When people come from elsewhere, uh, less developed countries, they will be identified as people who are coming to get people who need, but their needs are not reviewed in the same way. And people internalize that and they start to see themselves less than so once individuals start to see themselves as less than the others, um, it, it has a negative effect. And that needs to be recognised. And people start to see themselves as the other in a negative way. Uh, if we are to progress and care for people in health and social care, it's important that we don't see individuals as the other. We are part of the whole society UK-based. So yes, the individual will feel less than, and that feeling less than means um, not productive, not helpful, and we lose out as a society. Yeah, my, my aunts were actually working as nurses as I was growing up. My mother really didn't become a, a nurse until, until I'd gone to university. So my aunt talked about, you know, their experiences of discrimination. Um, and it's interesting because my, um, well, three aunts, in fact, they left the UK when I was about 11. Two went to Canada, one went to America. And I recently saw, um, saw my, well, I saw one of my aunts in Canada about 18 months ago. She sadly kind of died probably about a month or so ago. But when I saw her in Canada, she talked to me even then about the experiences of racism and discrimination that she experienced as a nurse here. And she worked at an eye hospital. And even um, she said that she was meant to get a prize for something that she did. And she didn't get the prize. It actually went to a white colleague. So she was, you know, she was very, you know, as I say, even what, um, you know, 60 years later, she was still kind of, you know, quite, you know, and, you know, 
understandably upset about the discrimination that she had experienced. You have been back on the front line during the pandemic. How has the world changed or has it changed? Uh, there have been some changes insofar as some uh, healthcare professionals do take note and if patients in particular uh, are registering uh, their dislike, discontent, disquiet towards, for example, a black nurse some managers will walk and have a conversation that it's not appropriate this nurse this doctor whatever their color they are here on merit to deliver care to you so it's not a personal opinion to them not everybody does that so patients are still uh, making comments that aren't pleasant what's important I would say colleagues who don't experience discrimination and are not labelled in that way to be sensitive. I have seen nurses crying. Uh, I'm a confident person. They will come to me. They will say, I'll never return onto this ward again, particularly if they were a visiting nurse who comes from an agency and they are treated in a way that's not... I don't, I don't mind black workers, but the atmosphere kind of tells a story. And they will come to me as a black person and they will say, yeah, I don't think I'll come back here. It's, it's not good. And I know almost instantly what they're talking about. So yes, there have been some changes. All trusts have all these wonderful policies on paper. But the reality of the cold face, so to speak, uh, it's got some way to go. Uh, trust the best they can do at this point in time and universities what they can do best uh, at this point in time is to create space for students or minority staff who have experienced discrimination or race-based discrimination this space with which they can talk discuss support each other I'm of the opinion at this point in time that individuals who are racist can't be taught how not to be racist. They've got to want to change. An employer is liable if they are not supporting their staff who are experiencing discrimination. And an employer is liable if they do not challenge an individual who is expressing their racism openly or in a way that's not open but it's identifiable. So it's at the system level, the employer is liable. It's also important that that employer within the NHS or social care allow the space for people who are experiencing those difficulties to support each other, to discuss so they can work through how to negotiate their way within a system that's still to change because they still need to work they enjoy their job most of the time they chose that profession because they wanted to but there are barriers 
And we know those bias can only come down when the systems and the people at the top create the space to allow people to challenge. Not everybody has the courage to challenge because it's exhausting work and it can make people physically ill. And it's a stress that's related to racism is bad news for minorities. Universities have a role in um, developing students that can think critically, that can challenge, um, and that you know are very clear about their own identity. That's what I think the role of a university should be. I think, unfortunately, if we have curricula that actually um, encompasses racism and colonialism, it can engender students coming out of the university, well, white students coming out of the university with a view that they are superior. And that then um, kind of follows right through to employment. So we have, you know, um, you know, managers within the NHS who just by virtue of the fact that they are white think that they are superior. And they think that, you know, black um, professionals are inferior. And, you know, sometimes, as you, you talked about my experience as a black senior manager, sometimes it's actually quite hard to challenge those views that people have of you. You know, because if somebody if somebody thinks that you're inferior, how you know how can you actually challenge that? Um, because and and if the institution that they are working in, you know, wittingly or unwittingly supports that knowledge, it's very difficult, you know, for you as an individual to challenge that. And that is why I think that within organisations, within um, different disciplines, we need to have um, spaces for black people, black professionals, you know, within the health service or black professionals within social services to meet, to discuss what their experiences are and then to support and enable each other. Um, because I think it's, it is going to be a struggle to overturn, you know, institutional racism. It's not something that an individual is able to do on their own overnight. So I think it, it is a huge agenda. I mean, I, I think it's the same within, within higher education. How can institutions explicitly teach what is meant by equality? So it filters down to the interaction between service user and health worker. It's, it's an area that we've been grappling with for the last 10, 15 years. Okay. I would say it's not that difficult to do. Okay. Uh, when you design a curriculum, you think it through. What is it in terms of material that will enable people who are learning to look at the population at large? So depending on the specifics, it's not complicated. It's just that the people who are in responsible jobs as lecturers, their material need to indicate mm -hmm. that they are caring for a diverse population rather than specifics. Most of the materials that have been written, the textbooks, the curriculum, 
It's Eurocentric and white. Mm -hmm. But the population is not Eurocentric and white. Mm -hmm. And that's the bit that needs to change. Students are eager to learn. They may resist, they may want to do this, but if it's part and parcel of what's assessed for them to progress, they need case studies that reflect the population. Mm -hmm. And if they are examining those case studies in order to pass, when they are doing their, their OSCEs in order to pass, they need to be able to say how they care for black skin mm -hmm. in a different way to white skin. Because what we apply and how we assess the skin is different. But mm -hmm. this is not to say this is better than the other. It mm -hmm. just is. And that care ought to reflect the knowledge that they have that enables them to care for people whose color schemes are different yeah. and are diverse. Often in medical school, a lot of the pictures that we see of conditions and a lot of the reference points that we use are often on white skin. So it kind of leaves you to guess what it looks like on darker skin. And I think that's not a great approach of dealing with the problem because I don't think it should be something that's left for interpretation. Something such as going pale um, it's so difficult to determine whether someone of darker skin has gone pale or whether they've gone blue at the lips. Um, so there's a lot of different terminology like that which we currently use, which doesn't necessarily make the best of use for describing a patient of darker skin. There's a lot of rhetoric around decolonizing the academy at the moment. Mm. And my question is to you, what does that mean to you, given that you walked into this country as a Rhodesian on a British subject passport before Zimbabwe had its independence? So everything I've gained uh, from a scholarship point of view, from a professional point of view, it's all UK Eurocentric based. There is a deficit. I've identified it. I don't see myself or I hadn't seen myself. That's what drove me to start writing about it. Uh, so 2020 young people joining the professions, training to become future professionals, need a different curriculum that recognizes colonialism, what's and all, acknowledging that we were colonized. That's why I left Rhodesia. I was fed up with colonization. I wanted to check out what was in the UK for myself. Um, 51 years in the United Kingdom, but I've also identified that there are still deficits and things need to be changed. And I believe in education and education is one way in which change can happen. But you look at the content of the curriculum and include what was, which has been thrown out, but still needs to be documented and show the students how that has shaped the discussion that we are having today because we are still identifying that oppression remains a problem. Mm. That's where it starts from. But we can't sweep it under the carpet. It has been, it is, but we, we run with it, but in a positive way. I think that a lot of the literature that we have within universities is from a kind of white male perspective. And the problem with that literature is that not only does it give a misrepresentation 
of the world um, in terms of privileging the, the kind of global north and diminishing the global south. Um, that, and it also gives the impression that there aren't um, educational theorists, other theorists from the global south. So we need to look at our curriculum and the kind of messages that it is giving, not just to black students, but giving to white students about the world. And, you know, and the values that are embedded in the curriculum. And it's about starting to unpick that and challenge, you know, the, the misrepresentation of and, and, and the colonialism and the racism that is actually part of the curriculum that we are continuing to teach and say, and, and if we think that education is liberation, if we continue to teach this, um, this curriculum, not only are we disadvantaging black and minority ethnic students, but also white students are, you know, their privilege is being reinforced. But um, as, as you kind of said at the outset, it's about decolonizing the university because we can't decolonize the curriculum without looking at the whole framework, the whole structure. We need to look at um, who is employed within the university, what levels people are employed. What's the big takeaway? What would you... The first thing I want to say is Black History Month, mm -hmm. once a year, needs to change. While it's been going on for a while, for a number of years, the sort of difficulties we've discussed covered so far are still there, in spite of Black History Month. Therefore, it needs to be done differently. Uh, so the big takeaway, having considered that what needs to change or needs to be, the materials need to be prepared in a way that permeates all areas of activity throughout the year. Black people are no longer on the margins. They're an integral part of the United Kingdom. So everything that we now do in education, whether it's preparing professionals to work in health and social care, in schools, supporting children, we can't continue to see the UK as a white society. It's not. It's multiracial, it's diverse. It's been great, but this is the point where I sign off. I sign out. I am grateful to both Jenny and Viola for sitting and thinking out loud with me, and to you for listening. My hope was to create a listening series that would act as a springboard for conversations elsewhere. And with that, I attach a reading list. So if you so choose, you can go off and read and think out loud elsewhere. I have no great big takeaway. So I leave you with the words of the late, the great, the unparalleled James Baldwin. What is it you wanted me to reconcile myself to? I was born here almost 60 years ago. I'm not going to live another 60 years. You've always told me it takes time. It's taking my father's time, my mother's time, my uncle's time, my brother's and my sister's time, my nieces and my nephew's time.
How much time do you want for your problem?